the advent of the smartphone has brought new ways of traversing rush hour. Now, even the most seasoned driver pulls up Waze or Google Maps or something else in order to find the most efficient route home that day. Because as many of us are accustomed, the route that worked one day may not work the next day. In fact, there was a time before um, smartphones and GPSing that many of us just had our tried and true shortcuts. And they weren't really shortcuts, were they? They probably took you 10 minutes out of the way, but you kept driving and it felt good because you were moving and not standing still. I think most of us are, most of us are inclined to want the easiest quickest route. It's the human condition, isn't it? The trouble is what happens when the best route is not the easiest or the shortest? What happens when the best route is the long one, the difficult one, the one fraught with tears and with sadness and frustration. Most of us would rather avoid that route if at all possible. And yet, in God's good grace, the way of the crown goes through a cross Micah paints a picture of hope in restoration. But as you've probably already figured out, the hope of restoration isn't the easy route, the short route, or the quick route. It's the hard one. Let's turn our attention to Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 13 this morning. It's printed for you there in your program. You may have it in a Bible app or a copy of the scriptures you brought with you. Stand if you would and hear God's word. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor. Rife and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Beloved, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And so, Father, in these moments, would you meet us? In these moments, would you speak to us? Father, when we go through the hard places and the dangerous roads, it feels like you have abandoned us. And so this day, would you remind us that no one has loved us like you have. No one has sacrificed for us like you have. So, Father, would you make yourself great? So as we begin this morning, I want to think about three things in our text. I want to think about restoration from pain. I want to think about restoration through pain. And then thirdly, I want to think about perspectives that we must cling to in the midst of pain. Now, I tried this last week, and some of the parents said this was helpful. Uh, so we'll try it again and see what happens. I want to give you, uh, for my younger listeners, for the uh, the elementary and, and middle school crowd that, let's face it, a 30-ish minute sermon, they may not be dialed in for the whole thing. Let me give you three things I want you to listen for this morning so that you can talk to your mom and dad later about them. Here's the first thing. I want you to listen for a story about a wrestling match. I want you to listen for a story about a scary illness. And then finally, I want you to listen for a story about a mistake lifting weights. Okay. So I want you to listen for a story about a wrestling match, a story about a scary illness, and then finally a story about a weightlifting mistake. All right, restoration from pain. This is the easy one. Um, And there's some beautiful truth that's here in Micah 4 that we ought to cling to. In verses 6 and 7, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. So there are two types of people that Micah mentions here in this text. First of all are the lame, and second of all are the people that have been driven away. So if we could understand the people as representing two types of categories, let's hear it this way. The lame are people that are suffering from affliction or pain inside of them, and then those that have been driven away have been uh, suffering from affliction that comes from outside of them. The lame are suffering with some reminder of the fall. And how it afflicts them, not by anything that they have done, but simply because of the way that they are. Those who have been cast off are the ones, again, who were powerless to fight back against whatever their external circumstances were. And so have found themselves as weak and vulnerable at the margins of society. 
sometimes the lame are also cast off, but you shouldn't view them as identical categories. I think that Micah is trying to show us two different groups of people, two different sources of affliction that have nevertheless suffered the same types of consequences. They are weak, they are vulnerable, they are outcast, they are without a voice. And listen to the promise that God makes to them through his prophet. He says, the lame, I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them. The hope that comes in this passage is this. Whether the pain that they have experienced or that we are experiencing is internal, external, or both, the promise is that God is going to restore them and restore us from all of it. Now, It's interesting when you look around today because there's not much evidence that people are in pain. I saw there's a, I tried to track down the quote or the source of this quote. It's been attributed to a lot of different people. The essence of it goes like this Everyone is fighting internally some battle. Be kind. Everyone is fighting some internal battle. Be kind. And some have attributed it to Plato and uh, other sources. Whoever the, the source of the quote was, here's the point. The reason the quote is necessary is because if people are fighting, and I think they are, internal battles, we hide it really well. We are a pain-hiding people. We don't want to appear weak. We don't want to appear struggling. We don't want to appear like we are in some sort of turmoil. We are also a pain-averse people. I'm the first one to admit that if my temperature goes above 98.6, I am going for the Tylenol. I don't like to feel bad. And personally, a fever of 99 feels like death. We were a pain-averse, pain-avoidant people. Part of the reason that we long for pain's relief is that we were not created for a world in which there is pain to start with. And much of our desires are shaped by longing for a world where pain, whether external or internal, is no more. We long for a day when pain can be alleviated. But our solution to that is never the hard road. When you're going home from work, none of you says, let's look on the Google Maps or the other app, whatever, was it Waze? Is that the other? That's the one, right. Um, none of us say, let's look at Waze, find the most congestion, and drive there. And yet, many times, God, in his great grace, in his great goodness, in his great love, wants to bring us to the hardest places, the most congested places, and say, I want you to be. That doesn't feel like love. It feels like something else. We'll talk about that in just a minute. 
God sees us in our pain. But he does not want us to be content with alleviating our pain by subpar antidotes. In verse 7, the lame will be made a remnant, and those who are cast off, a strong nation, even that in the midst of our pain, we're going to have restoration will come. Now, it's interesting here that the word that's used in the Hebrew for lame is not the word that we find picked up in books like uh, Isaiah's prophecy or even later in Jesus's ministry. Actually, the word that gets used for lame here harkens back to a much earlier story in Israel's history. It harkens back to Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with God. Now, for those that may need some reminding or some context about Jacob and his backstory, let's do it this way. Way back in Genesis 25, we learned this. Isaac loved Esau. Isaac loved Esau, Jacob's brother. It doesn't say that Isaac loved Jacob as well. It simply said he loved his older brother. So just imagine this for a moment with me. Imagine that you grow up in a home where your entire life you knew without a doubt that your father loved your sibling and not you. You lived an entire life not matching up to standards. So Jacob ended up engaging in trickery and stealing his brother's birthright. This was the birthright that was the blessing that God had promised his grandfather, Abraham, which Abraham had passed on to Isaac and which Isaac meant to pass to Esau. So then what happened? Well, the Bible tells us that Esau then hated Jacob. And so Jacob now is not only not loved by his father, he's actually hated and hunted for murder by his brother Esau. And the only one who remotely seemed to care about Jacob was his mother, and she died. And so he runs. He runs. He wanders, and it's in these circumstances where God shows up and meets him. Jacob wrestles with God. God appeared in the form of a man in Genesis 32, and and Jacob wrestles and becomes injured in a way that causes him to limp for the rest of his life. But at the same time, he also received God's blessing. His limp is both a reminder of having wrestled with God, but also having the blessing of God. God inflicted the limp upon Jacob. And this infliction of a limp was not meant to be a punishment. It was meant to be the reminder that would bring to mind the fact that God was with him and had restored him, even though his name meant he cheats. God met the cheater. 
God restored him. Jacob's pain was both caused by his circumstances and were a result of his circumstances, but in the midst of all that, God restored him. Micah is using this same imagery here to remind the people of God that though they may be lame now, they're also blessed. And the blessing of God is forever. Their lameness will cease, but the blessing of God, having the blessing of God will remain forever. But I said this was the easy one. Because the story doesn't end there. So now we have to talk about how restoration sometimes, most of the time, all the time, seems to come through pain. Here's the second part. In verses 9 through 12, we see a different picture of restoration. And it's not nearly as comforting as the first, at least not initially. In verse 9, Micah says that there will be trials, like a woman in the pain of labor. And the future outlook isn't um, much better either in verse 10, because it says they're, they're going to Babylon. That's not a place that the Israelites would ever want to go. They're going into exile. But look at what the emphasis of the text is, right? Verse 10, Write and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon there in exile, in Babylon. There you shall be rescued. Why did God instead not rescue them before they went there? We don't know. Why does God not rescue us before hardship and pain and trial? Promised rescue. Rescue would come. Because the rescue is not just coming from pain. It's actually coming In verses 10 through 12, the essence of it is this. Another nation is going to come and oppress you. You will live in exile away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, away from the presence of God. Your enemies will seek to take you over, but God's promise is this. I will not leave you abandoned. It's really interesting that um, Micah picks the image of a woman in the labor of childbirth here. It seems that this is the type of of pain that nearly uh, 50% of the world can identify with in some way, shape, or form. And it seems to be the only type of pain that one would be willing to go through at all because on the other side of the pain and the agony and all of the complications that come with it is a child that is your own. So here, here Micah's saying this, exile is coming, but exile won't be permanent. Restoration will come through it. Restoration from pain comes via a path through pain. Restoration from pain 
comes via a path through pain. In Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I found this illustration to be really helpful. Um, He first quotes a prominent theologian and then tells a story of someone who's wrestling with suffering no longer as an academic, but one who is in the midst of it. So he first quotes Alvin Plantiga, who says this, in the presence of his own suffering or that of someone near him, the believer in God may find it difficult to maintain what he takes to be the proper attitude toward God. Faced with great personal suffering or misfortune, he may be tempted to rebel against God, to shake his fist in God's face, or even to give up belief in God altogether. But this is a problem of a different dimension. Such a problem calls not for philosophical enlightenment, but for pastoral care. That was the quote that set off this internal angst of a man by the name of John S. Feinberg. Feinberg was a theological student when he first read Plantinga's statement, but he didn't fully understand it. In fact, in writing a response to it, he wrote this, I thought that as long as one had intellectual answers that explained why God allowed evil in the world, the sufferer would be satisfied. He sometimes, uh, Feinberg, sometimes saw Christians who had experienced a tragedy struggling with their relationship with God, and he admits he was impatient with them. But later... After he had become a teacher of theology at the graduate level, he learned that his wife had Huntington's chorea, a progressive neurodegenerative disorder that leads not only to the loss of all voluntary bodily movement, but to memory loss, depression, and various forms of dementia, including hallucinations and paranoia. He was told also that since the disease is genetically transmitted, each of his children had a 50-50 chance of getting the disease, though symptoms do not show up until age 30 at the earliest. After a time of denial, Feinberg said, it sunk in. In one fell stroke, we learned that my whole family was under this cloud of doom. With his mind, he knew the sound theological response to this situation. And it was this. Who was I, the creature, to contest the creator? He knew this in his mind. As Paul says in Romans, the creature has no right to haul the creator into the courtroom of human moral judgments and put him on trial as though he has done something wrong. God has total power and authority over me. But Feinberg says, I felt God had somehow misled me, even tricked me. It's striking, Keller says, how the last sentence follows on immediately from the previous sentence without so much as a nevertheless or a yet. Keller says that Feinberg knew the biblical and theological sound response to his situation, that God has the right to do what he wants. 
he recited it. But then he admits that even as he knew with this mind that God could do no wrong, he felt in his heart that God had grievously wronged him. Ironically, he had written his master's thesis on the book of Job and his doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago, focusing on the problem of evil in the world. He was the most studied of many academics in the world in this realm of human suffering and the problem of evil. And yet when suffering hit his life, all of his knowledge failed him at that moment. All of those ways that he had grown impatient and frustrated with people that couldn't simply wrap their heads around the sovereignty of God, all of a sudden he was one of those people that he used to grow so impatient with. In fact, he says this. He said, I had all these intellectual answers, but none of them made any difference to how I felt. Here was a man who with his intellect had worked out biblically-based, rational answers to the problem of suffering, and yet he had done so at a very high and scholarly level. Yet when suffering actually came into his life, he experienced such hopelessness that he wasn't able to function. He knew all sorts of biblical truths about evil and suffering, but now that he was in the actual furnace, they weren't helping him. He didn't know how to existentially access them. He was filled with anger. And along with this came a sense of abandonment and the absence of God. And this is why simply saying that God will one day rescue us from pain, but that that rescue may entail a process of pain, seems so foreign to us. It's why I've said it to you before that when you are in a crisis, you at that point don't need a lesson in theology. You don't need to dust off your systematic theology on the sovereignty of God and just remind yourself You need someone who's in the ditch with you, someone that can hear you, someone that can weep with you, someone that can pray with you, someone that's not going to try and fix you. Do you understand, friends, that those of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, just like Feinberg, when we are in the midst of trial and in the midst of pain and in the midst of suffering, what I need at that moment is not someone to try and fix deficient theology. What I need is someone to draw my hand close to theirs and sit with me as I weep. Because for Christians, the fact that most of our life is going to be marked not, the fact is that most of our life is not going to be marked off by ease and comfort, but it's rather going to be marked off by hardship and pain. And this seems to be how God works. The promise for Israel was not, but if your theology is just right, you won't go into exile. No, the promise was when you go into exile, Rescue will come there. When you go into exile, 
Rescue will come there. So how do we stay grounded? How do we stay focused? How do we actually find hope? Because this honestly sounds rather bleak. (laughs) How do we find hope? What is our true and abiding hope? And that's where we have to turn now. Third thing. What is, what is the perspective? What is the thing we have to cling to in the midst of our pain? There are two verses that I really haven't touched yet. Verse 13 um, talks about, uh, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. He is saying that eventually um, the people of God will somehow rise up and be able to overthrow and defeat these armies who are now defeating them. There is a future promise that's coming. And then back over in, back over just a little bit earlier in our passage. Well, before I get there. The fact that this is here, that okay, one day we'll be strong and one day uh, we'll be able to overthrow our enemies. That sounds lovely. That sounds good. Um, but it doesn't necessarily um, bring us um, a lot of hope. It sounds like what God is doing is standing there kind of like a spotter alongside someone that's weightlifting and watching them weight, lift weights. And right when the veins are about to pop in their neck, kind of reaches in and does that final little spot to help them get the bar back on the rack. And that's not a very hopeful sounding picture. When I was in college, I was trying to develop the discipline of strength training via weightlifting. So one evening, a group of us were working out, and I was doing a a vertical incline shoulder press with free weights. And it was a little bit more weight than I had done before. And when I was attempting a a few more repetitions uh, with uh, with the barbell and the weights, I felt my left shoulder start to give out on me all of a sudden. And so in this moment, I'm dropping the bar, but my spotter didn't actually see it happening. Because instead of watching me, he was looking at something else over in the room. So as I felt my shoulder catch and give, I felt the weight coming down to my neck. Now, that's not a pleasant feeling. But thankfully, he looked over at just in the nick of time before real damage was done. My shoulder was hurt and my confidence was shot and my trust issues with people once again confirmed. (laughs) Of course, I also carried this trust issue with people well into my relationship with God for many, many years. He's gonna help me, sure, eventually, but not before I feel a fair amount of pain. I had much to learn indeed about the good news of redemption, but more about that in a moment. We get a little bit of more perspective from the hope that comes in this text in verse 8. The promise that restoration would come through kingship for Israel. Verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, for the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is promising that a king will come to bring and to enact shalom, peace, fulfillment. 
And this is what the people were looking for. They were looking for a king to usher in peace. So how did God do this? Oh, yes, God sent Jesus, and Jesus is bringing in, ushering in peace. But you remember very well from the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels that they were very set on expecting that peace will come through military overthrow. It's not like they just made that up or or they were just a violent people. It was all throughout their promises. The promises that God had made said that rescue from exile will come and then God will make you a mighty nation. He will raise up this indestructible army and through that you will have the triumph over your enemies. And so God's people were expecting this. And then Jesus didn't come to preach a military uprising. And there was much confusion because the plot twist came The plot twist that no one saw coming was that Jesus himself came to experience the judgment of exile. Jesus experienced the exile of separation from God's blessing and the presence that Israel deserved. Jesus suffered in Israel's place. Jesus suffered in the way that you and I deserved. God is not unfamiliar with our pain. And here's why my weightlifting spotter mistrust issues were not in line with the faithful reading of the Bible. Because I felt like God was immune from my pain and couldn't understand at all how terribly I was struggling. But God did know how I was struggling. Where the weight hurt my shoulder because my spotter missed my plight, Christ was crushed under the weight of sin because his spotter, God the Father, had intentionally turned his back on his son. Jesus was going to be crushed and there would be no last minute rescue. He would know the full weight of the condemnation and crushing that you and I deserved and would know the full burden of every unclean thought and every sinful deed being scourged upon his back and hammered to his feet. Our trials are not the result of God turning his back on us, but utilizing them to bring us through them as a more fragrant and radiating offering to the life of Christ that is within us. So the question is, how do we do this? Since we are conditioned to be a pain-averse, pain-avoiding people, it seems counterintuitive and almost dangerous that we would go find the spot on the GPS that's the most congested and drive there. Or that you would go to the places of the most tenderness and the most vulnerability in your life and drive there. Why would we move towards pain and discomfort if it can be avoided? And to that, I would say this. In God's ordering of things for now, it seems to show us that part of how we know him sweetly and more deeply is as we cling to him in the midst of pain and in the midst of uncertainty. In his book, The Healing Path, Dan Allender says this. He says, the healing path must pass through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. 
Allender says, it's in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It's in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to the trinkets and baubles we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or we die. In the same volume, Allender says this, If we are closed to sorrow, we will also be closed to true joy. If we are closed to sorrow, we will also be closed to true joy. If we see death, the loss of a job, an unwanted pregnancy, a physical illness, or any other thing that we might be afflicted with in this world, if we see any of these things as nothing more than an event to be resolved as quickly and painlessly as possible, then we will miss the potential to grasp God in the midst of the event. If we are to experience the good that God intends through our suffering, at some point it is crucial to ask, what happens to me? What happens to you and I deep down at the core of my heart when I face loss, suffering, and harm? Beloved, what is it that happens to you? When you face loss or suffering or harm, what happens to your heart way deep down? Where do you go? What do you do? Do you accuse God of mistreating you? Do you say it isn't fair? Do you say I've been misunderstood? This isn't right. Do you say, why is it that I can eat right, exercise well, and I get cancer, and this person over here who eats fast food three days out of the week is living fine? Where's the fair in that? Do you shake your fist? How do you deal with your anger? What do you do? Do you take it out on others? Do you take it out on yourself? Do you black out? Do you just try and go to sleep? Pick up a hobby? What happens in your heart when the hard stuff happens? The hard stuff and the good stuff are both opportunities to know God more sweetly and deeply and intimately. But if we view the hard stuff as God pushing us away, And the good stuff is God drawing us near. That's going to be a pretty messed up view of God. And I say this as one who speaks from. We can do little to control pain, but we can make a heart decision now as to how we'll attempt to face it when it comes. Micah points us to the greater prophet, Jesus, who assures us of this. Pain and suffering are not a sign of the absence of God. They are the place in which to experience the presence of God. Because Jesus was crushed for us and conquered the grave, we know that no amount of suffering will ultimately crush us. It'll change us. And that one day on the great day of resurrection, when suffering and pain is no more, we will see clearly the one whose scars accomplished our redemption and whose obedience to death secured our resurrection. So friends, how are you making sense of your road towards restoration? Who are you processing it with? Who are you talking about it with? How are you avoiding it? Who's with you walking in the midst of the quiet desperation that you feel? 
Hear this and then we'll close. You need someone. You need someone to walk alongside of you and actually help you, um, encourage you to go to the hard places and the painful places and the scary places. You do. Whether it's me, whether it's an elder, whether it's a Stephen minister, whether it's a a close trusted friend, somebody needs to walk with you. Somebody needs to navigate in this with you because the fact of the matter is pain is is not an exception to our lives. It's the rule. And that restoration will come uh, ultimately from pain, but a lot of times, most of the time, restoration comes through or in the midst of it. So the question is not, are you going to experience pain? It's how you're going to deal with it. Dealing with it may hurt, but even, so, even though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning.